I'm extremely grateful to Foundation Devices for being the inaugural sponsor of this podcast. When it comes to beautiful, air-gapped, open-source Bitcoin hardware wallets, this is a team that I look to. Because I've really come to realize it's not just about the hardware. It's also just as important to look at the ethos of the team that's building it. You can have a crypto hardware wallet that does exactly what you need. But if the team decides to start developing in a direction that you don't like, for instance, like Trezor has by offering privacy tools only to those who are government approved and Ledger has done by adding the ability for hardware wallets to export their private keys It's not easy at all to make a change once you're already entrenched with that hardware wallet. The team at Foundation is focused on more than just your Bitcoin. They're focused on your sovereignty and your freedom. And that's invaluable when you're looking for a hardware wallet. You can check out Foundation and their Passport Bitcoin wallet at foundationdevices.com. On this episode, I speak with Jameson Lopp, the co-founder and CTO of Casa, which is an app that protects your Bitcoin and Ethereum with multiple keys stored in separate places for extra security. He's also the creator of Bitcoin.page, which is probably the best one-stop resource of info about Bitcoin that you're going to find on the web. That's Bitcoin.page. Most importantly, he's an OG cypherpunk, been involved with Bitcoin for nearly 10 years, and a vast wealth of information about Bitcoin. Let's get right to it with Jameson Lop. First, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. We've never like spoken before, but I've followed your work for a while. And I greatly appreciate you. You bet. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm always interested in, you know, having in-depth conversations with people that I've only had kind of, uh, you know, fly-by Passovers on Twitter with. Yeah. You, um, your Bitcoin resource, I know everybody tells you on your website, is like the best one out there. And it's, it's such a great example of what somebody can do with, um, just by hosting a resource like that. Lop.net mm-hmm. slash Bitcoin, by the way. Highly recommended. Or Bitcoin.page if, if that's easier to remember. Oh, no. You got a, an actual direct URL. I didn't know. Bitcoin.page. That makes it easier. Yeah, it just redirects, but I, f- I figured the vanity address might be uh, easier to tell people. That's awesome. Um, uh, who do you think your audience is? Like... Because I go back and forth between, am I talking to people who already know kind of this stuff, or do, am I talking? Am I trying to talk to people who are completely outside of this world and who want to, or who need this information? You know, who need this to be drawn in? Like, who do you feel like you're talking to usually? Yeah, I mean, I try to mix it up. Um, you know, I have my long form, in depth, highly technical writing that is probably gibberish to people who haven't been paying attention to the space for several years. And that's kind of my 
exploratory research trying to push the bounds of our understanding of what is going on. And then I just have my more simplistic, high-level 101 type of content. So, you know, I try to to hit the whole range. And, uh, you know, I don't optimize for any one thing. I don't, uh, you know, I'm not trying to, like, growth hack my audience like some people in the space. Uh, if I if I really wanted to do that, I, I probably could have, you know, more followers and, and more you know, normies and whatnot. But um, in general, I just consider myself a thought spewer and I, I'm, I'm not trying to do any one thing. It's just like whatever comes across my radar is, uh, is what I decide to spend my time talking about. So I guess indirectly some of what I do is certainly based on feedback and questions of if I, if I notice a pattern where I'm getting the same question dozens of times, and then I'll, I'll do some quick research and try to figure out like, is there a good simple explainer type of resource around this question? If not, maybe I should create it. But if there is, then I'll put it on my website. And, and, you know, that was actually the onus for my resources. This is not something that I created because I felt like it was going to give me fame and glory and whatnot. It was very self-serving. It was Mm -hmm. because back in 2016, 2017, the volume of questions kept increasing and there was so much repetition between them. It was becoming a huge time suck to repeat myself all of the time. So I really, I just, I started off where this was literally just a, a folder of different bookmarks in my browser. I'd get a question it would probably match something I had seen a hundred times. I would go to my bookmarks and I would copy paste the bookmark to you know whoever was asking the question. And eventually, I was like, you know, this is not scaling very well either. I need to be able to just tell people to go to one place. And so that's when I took all of my bookmarks and organized them and you know added them to my website. And and really today, I, I usually spend a few minutes almost every day doing some sort of maintenance on that website. You know, this space is constantly evolving. There's link rod issues. Some some sites go away. Some new resources are created by other people that I can categorize and link to. So it's very much a living document, and it's actually open source. So people are are free to uh, open a pull request if they come across something that they think is worthy of being added. That's cool. Yeah, I know what you mean with the same questions getting asked a lot. And mm-hmm. I think that, like, at least from my experience... Um, with Twitter being kind of the main, uh, I guess, place that people look for this information now. I, I mean, myself, I answer the same questions over at least like once a month, right? Like it's like over and over. And, and just when you think that people get it, then uh, you mm-hmm. post the same thing again a month later and it, you know, it gets tremendous interaction again from all these people who are like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know. So it's almost like Twitter, it's obviously great for distribution, but it's also like erased people's memories. Because I feel like sometimes it's even the same people who forget, you know, the stuff that you (laughs) told them. So to have it in one place like like this for Bitcoin, I guess that's why this has become such an important resource for a lot of people. And I go back to your site and review a lot of this stuff. 
even though I've already read it. You know, it might have been a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, but like stuff about seed phrase security and you know how to um, make sure that your opsec is as strong as it can be and all this different kind of stuff it's like you can't read that once and just be done right like you have to almost study it over and over and over who do you like who do you go to 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 get that reinforcement do you go out there and do you have people that you look to so that and then you can in turn share it with the rest of us Um, no one in particular, it's just a lot of different people. The, um, you know, the space has become so large and diverse that, you know, we see a lot of specialization now. So, you know, some people are really good at, for example, privacy stuff. Some people are good at security. Some people are good at economics. Um, this is actually one of the first articles I ever wrote about Bitcoin, I think back in 2014, was the the multifaceted nature of the space, where there's easily a dozen, if not more, uh, different you know fields of expertise that kind of overlap. And almost nobody is an expert in more than one or two fields. So you you really have to diversify you know the the people that you're listening to as well if you want to get as much you know comprehensive knowledge and as much of a broad understanding of what's happening in the space yeah so true like my i came in um i guess 6 years ago now into the bitcoin rabbit hole and uh somehow evolved into um, a critic of DeFi on Ethereum, you know, and I never mm-hmm. stopped being a, a Bitcoiner, but most of the stuff that I talk about is related to the stuff that's going on on Ethereum. And the reason for that, the justification for me to do that is because that's an area that I understand and I understand how it can be directly compared to Bitcoin, you know? So I, I feel like it's my way of educating people about Bitcoin to constantly compare all the stuff that's happening on Ethereum to the to the level of, of trustlessness and self-sovereignty you can achieve with Bitcoin and just constantly explain to people like, you're not even close to that with this application on Ethereum. You're you're complete opposite end of the of the spectrum. So it's like it's my own little way to contribute to Bitcoin now, like Bitcoin's so big that you can contribute to it by actually specializing in stuff going on on other blockchains and explaining that stuff in the context of Bitcoin. So I, you're right about the specialties and, and sort of different ways of contributing that I guess we we couldn't have even really thought of like five, ten years ago. Um, but do you... Yeah, the... Um you know, the flip side, of course, is that uh, Bitcoin simply doesn't have the same breadth of functionality. So uh, it's it's sometimes funny to see people complaining about DeFi, and then they, they tend to dismiss most of the functionality. And they're like, well, we could do it on Bitcoin. I'm like, yeah, sure, maybe if you spend a few years writing some novel software and coming up with a lot of new trade-offs. But, you know, you know, DeFi exists for a reason. There is a demand from certain people for that. Uh, I don't have to agree with it. You know, most most of it to me seems to be like sophisticated forms of gambling, uh, and so it doesn't interest me. But there is, you know, there's no denying that there is demand for it. Mm-hmm. 
Do you um, are you happy with the existing state of Bitcoin? Like, are there things that you would have liked to have seen happen by now that haven't happened, despite your your pushes and stuff like that? Oh, absolutely. I, I do not think that Bitcoin is um, anywhere near complete. So. Uh, this is another, I think, point of friction between some people in the community and myself and really a lot of the developers. Um, I started talking about ossification earlier this year because I've seen more of a, a push for it, especially after some of the inscription drama. But, you know, I'm a engineer. I see Bitcoin as uh, programmable money, even though, you know, compared to most of the other protocols out there, it is much more restrictive in how you can you know, do the, the scripting and the various interactions with it. But um, there's so much left to be done on the scaling side of things on the privacy side, even on the security side, uh, there have been uh, some proposals that I think could greatly enhance uh, the available security models to, to self-custody and really to any custody. So I, I do want to continue to see changes and improvements at the base layer. Um, of course, this will get this gets controversial with some people, but I especially think we should be prioritizing changes at the base layer that can you know, supercharge uh, second layer solutions. And you know, a lot of people, especially non-technical people, tend to hand wave away making changes to the base layer. And they say, oh, we don't need to ever make any changes to the base layer because you can do everything at the second layer. And while that may technically be true with enough time, effort, and creativity, it can also get really hacky. And like one of the real examples of that that I point out to people is actually Lightning. Um, the original Lightning white paper actually proposed several different paths by which uh, Lightning as a protocol could be developed. And the, the optimal paths required several soft forks to happen to the base layer. And thankfully they did, because if they had not, then Lightning would have been an even more complex and kludgy protocol and I think would not be able to offer quite the same level of guarantees as it does in its current form. So you know, there are protocol uh, changes out there that if implemented could improve lightning even more, could improve other second layers like drive chains. Um, I want to see as much innovation, especially with second layers as possible, because I do believe that innovation will, will happen much faster at second layers. But right now I think we're kind of hamstrung with how difficult it is to even create these other second layers. What do you think second layers are gonna are gonna do for Bitcoin that it can't do now? Are you just talking about cheaper transactions, faster transactions, or are you thinking about programmability? Or like, what in your head? What do you see as the the promise there? Well, yeah. So you know, when you are creating a second layer, in a way, it's it's kind of like creating a whole new blockchain, a whole new protocol. And whenever someone creates a new protocol, what are you doing? I mean, you're creating a new game. You're creating a new set of rules by which 
anyone who agrees with and decides to play that game can now interact. So you know, the possibilities are really only limited by our imagination and our ability to experiment and uh, you know, find what works and what doesn't. Now, obviously, that means there will be failures and setbacks, but that's the only way that you can really move forward meaningfully. So, yeah, scaling, privacy, um, you know, even DeFi-like applications at second layers. The, the missing link, though, is the ability to easily create these second layers in such a way that they are actually tied to Bitcoin in a trustless fashion. The, one of the missing kind of holy grails of Bitcoin development is the trustless two-way peg this was first originally envisioned in, I think, the 2014 Sidechains white paper and has never materialized. And I think the really the best proposal that we have for that right now is drive chains. Uh, drive chains themselves are somewhat controversial, but the folks behind them have been developing them for quite a few years now. So... You know, we'll we'll see how that goes, but I I especially I want to see us be able to actually attain that vision of people being able to spool up side chains that are not simply you know a multi-signature federation for the actual funds being pegged in and out. Right, like uh, RSK is, which is the only one I'm aware of, but I'm sure there's others. Uh, RSK and Liquid, and I think there may be a couple of others that are even smaller and less adopted. Okay. I guess with Layer 2s, you know, my experience with the Ethereum ecosystem has been pretty negative as far as... Um, and this actually goes into a topic I wanted to talk, talk to you about, which is what can we... What is the most we can really expect from people from normal users with regard to the research they're going to do you know and with with ethereum's programmability and with the ease of which you can spin up a centralized layer two on ethereum which they all are by the way like 100 mm-hmm. percent of the layer twos on ethereum are centralized to the point where a single multi-sig can basically make any kind of upgrade or bring the whole thing down um, and, and they're primarily funded by like Silicon Valley VCs, and they're they've been created not for purposes of enhancing liberty or freedom or self sovereignty, but for the purposes of generating a profit and an exit for those VCs and the founders. You know, so like why why should we think that it would go differently with Bitcoin and? and just the, the subtext to this, too, is that with Ethereum, those Layer 2s have attracted a huge percentage of the transactions that would have occurred on the Layer 1. Obviously, the Layer mm-hmm. 1 got super expensive, et cetera, et cetera. But people, I've found, are perfectly willing to trade away the decentralization that brought them into the space if they're going to save money and it's going to make their life easier. Like They almost revert back to what they were before. You know, and I feel like with Bitcoin, there's a strong chance that that could happen with Bitcoin Layer Twos as well. Like, what's your experience been with this? Well, yeah, I mean that is the permissionless nature of these protocols. Uh, you know, we should expect that um, if the you know, side chain technology 
continues to improve that there will be excellent side chains from a you know liberty perspective and there will be equally terrible side chains and you know probably even some outright scams and ponzi schemes and who knows what uh, though i think you know at the really high level from a like security liberty perspective if we get those permissionless two-way peg side chains out there then that at least means that there will be some sort of escape hatch where you know people can get their money out if it looks like something's going wrong but you know this is still pretty theoretical you know area of exploration since we haven't actually seen this type of technology deployed with real money mm-hmm. yeah now i hear you with like it's still theoretical and it would require a lot of layer one work to make it happen do you like do you have like i guess part of my issue and my struggle is that uh, i go back and forth on whether i have faith in the long term that this space won't just suffer the tyranny of the majority and I feel like the more mm-hmm. people that come into the space, the more the higher percentage of people that don't care as much about all the stuff that we tend to care about, you know. And I think that we're seeing it already with um, the way regulation is forming, and the way that um, government is never going to look at crypto from the point of view of freedom. Like it's going to look at it from the point of view of what can we control, you know, what can we do to protect this guy over here who's never even heard of crypto and keep him from losing all of his money in it. And it just seems to me that it's almost like a losing battle to try to to convince more people that um, this is the, the path forward, you know, as opposed to like hardening Bitcoin's defenses against their inevitable like tyranny against it, you know, when they decide it's evil. So do you think that encouraging, like, I guess, I guess what you just said is, is the way, like the permissionless peg, you know, and having a trustless way to, um, to move Bitcoin, to move in, in quotes, Bitcoin to and from a layer two is the way to sort of begin that journey. But long term, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, if we want to you know, step back at take the 10,000 foot view of all of this, uh, I would actually draw a kind of parallel between your government and, and what you're describing. I, I think we see similar things happen at the sort of civilization level uh, where it, it does seem like there is due to incentives in human nature over years, decades, generations, societies, you know, groups, organizations tend to um, collapse you know, towards tyranny and, and ultimately towards a sort of failure state. And, you know, this same thing with empires, right? Is they, they, grow big enough that they end up creating all of these systemic weaknesses where ultimately they can't sustain themselves. Um, so, you know, perhaps this is a, a, a terrible metaphor or whatever, but I actually 
I look at it kind of from a like constitutional perspective of like, you know, look at the United States. One of the greatest things that the United States ever did was with its founding documents. And the reason for that was because the founding documents actually went to great lengths to limit the power of the government. And, you know, over the period of centuries, many, many generations, of course, that has been degraded in a variety of different ways. And I think that is somewhat expected. But if we hadn't had those original protections, I think the degradation would have happened far faster. So I kind of see a similar type of game theoretical issue with, you know, Bitcoin and and these other protocols where you need to start out with the absolute strongest foundation that you know protects the individual users and you know we can speculate as to whether or not that will be maintained over the long run but if you don't at least start out from there you know you're already in a bad position so you know this is why i think it's so important to have that that fundamental ability for uh, an individual user of like a layer two technology to be able to move their funds out of that layer without having to ask permission, um, you know, without having to have gatekeepers scattered all throughout the the ecosystem of the technologies that are being built around this. Now, obviously, a lot of these technologies will have gatekeepers, and there's incentives for people to to build their systems in that fashion. Um, and so, from that perspective. You know, I, we will see centralization and and various weaknesses um, sort of pervade many corners of the ecosystem. You know, this is what I've been doing for almost a decade now: is uh, fighting against the encroaching convenience of custodians and, and people leaving all of their money with trusted third parties. And you know, I figure if nobody is fighting against that, then that will degrade the 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 system as a whole faster and faster so you know i'm i'm not terribly optimistic about it you know i think it's one of those things both with security and privacy where the vast majority of people don't care about it until it's too late and the only way that we can meaningfully fight against it is for the people like myself who do care about it to use our resources to try to make security, privacy, you know, other aspects that are in- incredibly important to liberty, make that as convenient as possible so that hopefully at least a larger portion of people who come along will end up choosing something that puts them into a better position where they're you know less likely to get screwed in one way or the other. But ultimately, a lot of people are going to get burned. And that's kind of, I think, the nature of the game. Yeah, we're seeing way too many good examples of uh, what happens when when people are forced to choose between liberty and freedom or like a comfortable life of free of persecution. You know, I feel like with the whole, you know, the past three years with, with COVID and everything, and uh, that opened my eyes up so much with regard to um, how quickly principles can get compromised when somebody's afraid. You know, and ultimately, mm-hmm. fear is the real, more than guns, more than tanks, more than bombs. Fear is the real weapon that 
a government uses against its own people. And uh, fear was utilized the past few years to, to coerce people into going against what they believe and what they like their own virtues, you know, the stuff that makes them unique. And I, I think that the, the last few years really are the ones that convinced me that in the long term, uh, Bitcoin, personal belief, feel free, I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. In the long term, I don't think that um, this type of technology is going to uh, take over the world, you know, as far as everybody's going to be using it, everybody's going to be valuing it, we're going to live in a place in a world where everybody's, you know, understands what it what it means to be financially free from fiat, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. I just, I don't see it happening maybe over a thousand or five thousand years, but like, at least in the near term, you know, it's going to be a small percentage of the world that actually gets it. And it's almost like we have to now put that shell up around us to keep all the other the other 95 percent of the world away from you know attacking these virtues and, and attacking these principles that's I, I think I'm more on the pessimistic side and more like almost dystopian side of this but what where are you on that yeah uh, there's so many examples that we could look at um, you know obviously you look at like uh, Fang, right? The sort of Facebook, Apple, Google, um, the tech giants that have managed to create such amazing levels of functionality and utility and convenience for people that they've really hoovered up uh, huge swaths of people's data, and people are more than happy to hand that over. Uh, there are are a few, you know, glimmering points of hope. Uh, you know, I think a really good example is Signal, for example. I think, you know, Signal has gotten a mass level of adoption and they've, they've actually been able to put a huge number of people into a really uh, sound set of, you know, privacy for their communications channels. And that I bet that, I bet most people who use Signal don't even really understand you know, how it's protecting them. And, and that's great. Like that's, that's how you get mass adoption of, of privacy and freedom technology is you just offer a level of convenience where it's like interacting with any other app. It's just so happens that under the hood, it's protecting you. So, you know, that's what I think we need to be going after, you know, that type of model where we're, we're offering, really the same type of interface that people are used to for dealing with, you know, perhaps their banking applications, their PayPal's and Venmo's or whatever. It's just so happens that under the hood, it's doing all this much more complex, you know, self-sovereign crypto stuff. But mm -hmm. of course that means it has to work <laughs> and it has to be highly reliable. And if something does go wrong, they need to be able to reach out and get help from someone. You know, that's one of the other big missing aspects, especially in the sort of free open source software space, is that there often tends to be no support line or it's like a community volunteer level of support, which is going to turn a lot of people off. So, you know, I think that we, we can see that there are paths there that are available. It's just that 
they are the path less taken and it's the harder more difficult path yeah with the you know with the adoption into commercial ventures like paypal etc and to see that running on crypto rails um, goes back to the whole problem that decentralization is by its nature it's less efficient it's more expensive it's messier than uh, centralized tech right which you can run on a server and you don't have to worry about all the the open source obligations and stuff like that so for a commercial venture like a paypal or facebook or any of these guys to to adopt a decentralized infrastructure um, would be like betraying their shareholders almost right because it's like you're you're um, you're not choosing the most efficient path forward for the company. You're you're putting principle ahead of profit in that case, and that never happens for a reason, right? Because of capitalism, yep. you know. <laughs> so you know, and we're seeing that with with Ethereum. We're seeing that with with the layer twos. It's like, why should we add these layers of decentralization when we can just keep it centralized? People are still going to use it. It's going to be better for our bottom line. It's going to cost us less to run. Um, so we're already seeing that. So it's like wherever there is is commercial um, venture capital or other types of investment going on, you're almost guaranteed to see mutations of the tech, and you're almost guaranteed to see like un- untenable cent- centralization. You know, and I, I just don't. I haven't seen any variations from that, and I don't think we ever will because, like I said, it would be a betrayal to the company itself, like to to spend more money than you need to in order to accomplish this goal. So, yeah, I mean, what do you think about um, um, I, and one area I get concerned about is with the way that Bitcoin um, is influenced by companies who do that kind of stuff you know and i like there's plenty of funding coming into bitcoin development from companies that have shown that they're willing to sacrifice on decentralization in order to have a profitable company um Mm -hmm. like exchanges like custodians like etc and i know you even you worked at bitgo right a custodian so like do you think that um, longer term, that type of influence that they have over over development, and when I say influence over development, I'm talking about specifically funding developers, like paying rent and food for <laughs> for for bit for Bitcoin developers. Do you think that long term that Bitcoin could start to make sacrifices in order to achieve commercial goals for those types of of companies? Mm, no, not really. I mean, I couldn't tell you the figures off the top of my head, but I suspect that a far greater portion of developer funding is actually being funneled through nonprofits. Um, you know, I donate a fair amount myself to several different initiatives, uh, charities that you know they basically run grant programs. Uh, if anything, I would say the on the sort of commercial business side of things hiring uh, developers or you know paying for grants is pretty minuscule and it's been underwhelming for uh the past 
decade even, uh, I, I would suspect there were actually more developers that were being employed um, you know, back in like 2015 by some of these companies than there are today. Uh, but that's just sort of anecdotally off the top of my head. Um, so, you know, as the ecosystem grows, we also we see more people you know, donating to these charities, these grant programs, and it kind of fluctuates back and forth with the market cycles, of course. But from what I've been hearing from a lot of the developers, one of the, the bigger problems is just, you know, curating talent, getting new people interested, uh, getting people to do code review. Um, it's, it's the review process that's really more of a pain than the actual, like, writing of code. Uh, because, of course, we want to be incredibly careful and conservative about any changes that go into widely adopted Bitcoin software. So I'm, I'm really not concerned from a governance perspective in the foreseeable future, but my long-term concern has more to do with what we were talking about earlier is just the, um, the incentives of, of convenience versus security and sovereignty and whatnot. Uh, once again, what I've been fighting against for so long, if we do get real like mainstream adoption and the vast majority of that adoption just happens through exchanges and custodians, they get onboarded through those companies and then they never withdraw their money because the default is to just st stick with the custodian. That's what worries me in the long term Uh you know, if the custodians end up holding a significant or vast majority of the actual coins, you know, that's when some of the incentives around governance uh, may start to break down. And that's what worries me more. So, you know, we had during the scaling debates, thankfully, a very active community of uh, you know, people that you know, run their own nodes and voice their opinions and basically... Uh, a large economic power, which you could argue it may be more important than the sort of node aspect, but um, you know there were some like future markets that were running uh, before any of the scaling debate forks happened that basically showed that you know ninety percent of the people who cared about this stuff were going to dump all their coins on the the big block forks, and that's basically what we saw actually happen. Um, hmm. So it's really an activism thing and kind of like what you were saying, you know, as mainstream folks come into the system, they're going to bring all of their mainstream you know, legacy perspectives around how things work. And that's what could be the bigger danger of basically people coming in and, and believing that democracy is how things should happen because obviously uh, we're not building democratic systems here at least from a governance perspective it's inevitable right it's like it's gonna happen it's just a matter of time but like i want to go back to something you said because you were talking about how with the custodians holding more coins more bitcoin they have more power in the debate how why does that happen because this is not a proof of stake system obviously so like what gives them that power? Are you just talking about like political power or what kind of power is it? 
It's systemic risk that happens as a result of the decisions that the custodians can make. So I'm not a lawyer, but uh, if I recall from some of the examples, I, I think, you know, like one example, if I recall correctly, that happened um, with the Grayscale Trust is I think that they have some clauses in there. And I think that a number of other custodians have similar clauses that basically say that if there is a fork, we, the custodian, get to choose you know, what the real fork is. And we, mm -hmm. we reserve the right to like sell those coins or to not even let you access those fork coins. Um, I think this came up again uh, recently with the BlackRock ETF, yep. maybe, and some phrasing that was in there. And so, so you know, the short version is it's centralization and putting a lot of power into a, a small number of hands where these um, these companies and often just like a handful of people at these companies now get to make decisions on behalf of potentially millions of people. I don't know if that just came through, but I'm in a hotel and they just decided because it's like we're doing a podcast. So, of course, they're going to get on the fire alarm speaker at the exact moment. That's 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 a massive yeah it's a massive concern and you're right it did come up with the BlackRock ETF recently and it's another one of these things that I almost wonder with everything we've been talking about and the fact that we really can't rely on the majority to make rational decisions when it comes to financial self sovereignty right so like isn't it inevitable isn't it inevitable that custodians are going to pick up more and more of a share of the Bitcoin and that they will have that political sway over development. Um, and even if like there's this, it just always seems to come back to this small group of, of pirates at the end of the day, defending some fork of Bitcoin that manages to stay uh, true to the principles we were, mm -hmm. we talk about and we believe in right now. Um, you know, but that net that always to in my head is the is the smaller portion versus the the corporate government friendly centralized to a certain extent, maybe even proof of stake uh, Bitcoin fork that will please all of the Black Rocks and all of the the um, central banks of the world in the long term. You know, and and. One good example of what freaks me out about this entire thing is I feel like we might have already seen this kind of influence uh, with regard to privacy on Bitcoin. Like, why don't we have privacy on layer one except for the fact that it would mean that Bitcoin uh, wouldn't be useful uh, to custodians? Like, is that the main reason that you think we don't have privacy today? Uh, I mean, I think that the main reason we don't have strong cryptographic privacy is that the solutions that are out there tend to break the auditability of the supply. So the, the way that I've looked at it is that there are many different priorities and you know, valuable attributes of Bitcoin that are generally agreed upon. And the you know, ability to easily audit the money supply is one of the top few of those. And privacy is much, much further down on the sort of value attributes. So, you know, 
any any type of privacy enhancing technology that breaks that ability, I think, is a non-starter. So you you don't think Bitcoin will ever see layer one privacy? You're, you're thinking layer two, like optional privacy in the future, maybe, based on what you said earlier, right? Not to put words in your mouth, but that's what I'm gathering. Um, I, I don't think that we will see it implement any of the type of cryptographic privacy solutions that some other coins have implemented to date, but that doesn't mean that there's no way to improve the privacy. Um, you know, for example, if I recall correctly, you know, things like, um, the, any prevout proposal where you can essentially, have massive you know, shared input transactions. One of the cool things about that is that can really supercharge lightning channel construction. So you can essentially have um, L2, um, by which I mean ELTOO, which I think is a Blockstream project, so much more massively scalable uh, lightning nodes. Um, but I think that that can also supercharge Bitcoin mixing, if I recall correctly. So, you know, there are ways to take some of the existing technologies we have, like Lightning and coin mixing, and make them even better. And, you know, then you could sort of quibble over whether or not that is strong enough privacy or not. But, you know, I don't advocate coin mixing in general because I think. A, it doesn't really scale. It can get very expensive if you're doing it a lot because of the volatility of on-chain fees. And B, it's easy to do a bunch of coin mixing and still shoot yourself in the foot if you're not really careful about your UTXO management. And I think that UTXO management is not something that is ever going to be like a mainstream adoption level of thing. Like that's that needs to be completely abstracted away from the average user. That should really be a power user type of functionality. So it, does, it doesn't mean, though, that it's not possible for us to continue improving coin mixing technology and improve some of the, the underlying functionality that is currently limiting what can be done with coin mixing. But then how, what are the other options for staying private on Bitcoin when you um, are forced, for the most part, unless you go to great lengths, uh, you're forced to, to identify yourself to the government to get permission to buy Bitcoin in the first place? And then with tools like Chainalysis and you know, TRM Labs and all these other guys out there that are highly incentivized financially incentivized to to keep tabs on us and to track us down when needed what hope does a bitcoiner have to achieve um, privacy and get uncucked i guess i don't know unchained from the from the government in that case well i think you touched on it uh which is the fact that a large portion uh last i checked it was around half it may still be majority but a very large portion of transactions are to and from exchanges. And of course, these you know, centralized exchanges are the choke points. They're the ones that have regulatory pressure and compliance and are often working with the chain analysis companies in, in various fashions. Um, 
I think the way around that is that we need to break this onboarding offboarding cycle. Like we need actual peer to peer circular economy where you're not interacting or we don't have like everybody interacting with a handful of, uh, of choke points, but rather we're we're actually engaging in meaningful direct peer to peer transactions, which, which means that, you know, buying Bitcoin I think optimally, like buying and selling Bitcoin should not even really be a thing. Uh, we should be earning Bitcoin. We should be paying Bitcoin you know, for goods and services. Like that's one of the ways to, I guess, uh, indirectly improve our privacy is just by simply not routing all of our transactions through a handful of entities that can surveil us. Yeah, it's... Um it seems like it's trending in the other direction, though, with the sort of the talk and the planning with CBDC, right? With as far and it's almost becoming like a buzzword now, CBDC. But it's becoming a for me, it's becoming a general catch-all phrase um, for government um, for for digital, highly trackable fiat money um, that is printed directly from a central bank into your own cryptographic or otherwise wallet, you know, and um, anybody who knows me knows, like, I see it as inevitable at this point. I see a lot of this stuff as inevitable. And I'm not sure if that's just because I'm, I'm a gloomy, gloomy Gus type pessimist, or if it's based on um, just the way that humans are and the way that humans have always been and and the trend that we've seen with our own country over the past 250 years, right? Where we're, we're now betraying the very, um, the, the majority is, is happy to betray the rules, the, the consensus mechanism that was set up for us here. Um, even though it's the, the reason that we're here, the reason that we have this beautiful system that we have today uh, the reason we have the freedom we have today is because of the, the the Constitution of the United States, which basically is the Bitcoin layer one of the United States. And fast forward to to now, and we see people that can't even tell you what you know the First Amendment actually is, or can't even tell you what Article One says, or like you know, it's like they have no idea even um, where the capitals of, of their state. are. Are, you know so yeah well you know it's been it's been really perverted right is like even though there's a lot of protections uh from you know the government for example spying on its citizens you know they they managed to find workarounds so so now what we have instead is we have corporate surveillance and then the, the government just enters into agreements with the corporations for data sharing so that, you know, they're not actually surveilling people directly. And, you know, it's quote unquote legal to do that. Um, it's also, you know, cryptography is a double edged sword. Um, you know, there's two different ways at a really high level to use cryptography. One of them is to, actually encrypt data and make it private so that only the intended recipient can even decipher the data. The The flip side of it, though, is actually tracking and, you know, basically using public keys as identifiers so that you can then, uh, you know, tell, you know, who is doing what because, you know, your activities are you know, cryptographically signed and say, okay, you know, public key X was the one that initiated this particular thing. And, and so 
I think we should expect that governments and authorities will be more than happy to leverage that latter half of functionality to their own benefit to basically empower themselves and their own surveillance capabilities. Yeah. Have you been following this WorldCoin story? <laughs> How can you not? Uh, yeah, there's um, there's so much wrong with that. And, you know, unfortunately, they have a lot of uh, capital, so I think they're going to be around for a while. Yeah, to me, it's it's another one of those breadcrumbs as far as what the future is going to hold. You know, because I, I think that um, somebody put it perfectly that, that it's not proof of work, not proof of stake. It's proof of stupidity of the people who are ultimately walking up to this device, letting it scan their biometrics mm-hmm. in exchange for a few dollars worth of some token that they have no idea what it is. They'll probably have to dox to an exchange in order to even sell it for five bucks or whatever it's worth. But the the biggest issue with this, with COVID, with with just a lot of stuff we've seen lately is that people lack the ability to think rationally. They weren't taught how to think. They weren't taught how to apply logic to these types of situations, and they weren't taught to value human rights as much as they think that they do, right? It's like, you know, the people who often scream the loudest about human rights are the people who least understand what they actually are, you know, that they are about being free to make your own decisions, being left alone, being able to, uh, you know, think independently, you know, so WorldCoin, you know, it is what it is. Obviously, I don't think it's going to succeed. It's gimmicky. It's, you know, it's like a toe in the water almost for these guys to see what they can get away with, I think. But it's, it's, a, it's a test. It's, it's, a, it's a predictor, I think, for what's around the corner, not just for WorldCoin, not just for Ethereum, not just for um, Sam Altman or anything like that, but for Bitcoin, too, I think. I think that... Um, we need to look at stuff like this and we need to apply it to to the future of Bitcoin and think about the attack vectors and think about how unbelievably ignorant, and it sounds mean, right? It sounds like I'm being a jerk, but the more of this stuff I see, the more you, the more you have to acknowledge the reality in front of your face. Most people don't know how to think, you know? So it's like when they're confronted with defend Bitcoin or get $3 worth of McDonald's vouchers in exchange for your fingerprints, they're going to pick the McDonald's vouchers. <laughs> it's like, like, so, uh, you know, am I being too pessimistic? Am I being too negative on, on the majority? No. Um, what, so what's novel about WorldCoin? You know, they have the hardware that's somewhat novel. They have some you know, zero-knowledge uh, functionality that's novel. But what's not novel and what has been done many times before is airdrops. And I think it's, it should be quite clear from now that you know, simply giving money away to people, giving tokens away, uh, people don't value it. Like when you give them something for free, they ascribe basically no value to it. So I, I think it's it's incredibly over-optimistic to believe that you can bootstrap a monetary system by airdropping a bunch of tokens to people, regardless of like the other you know, security and privacy uh, attributes around how you're doing the airdrop. Yeah, that makes sense. 
It's true. It's it's interesting to watch, but yeah, most people that get it, if they can get a few bucks for it, they'll just sell it. It's not going to become like a big global phenomenon of any sort. Um, famous last words. Watch, we'll replay this in five mm-hmm. years, and WorldCoin will be the dominant uh, financial system of the world. What do you think about um, taking a right turn a little bit um, about the options for Bitcoiners to be? Um, self-sovereign with their custody right now do you think that the hardware wallet system scene that we see right now do you think it's adequate because the more that i watch it and the more that i watch the decisions that are being made and the more that i see the corporations making corporate decisions as opposed to um, user-based decisions the more i wonder if if we're going the wrong direction with regard to the options that we have as normal people. Uh, and I know you just wrote a blog post or you just shared a blog post recently about burying your, your metal engraved seed mm-hmm. words in your back, you, you know, somewhere in the woods, yep. you know, like that's obviously an option, uh, you know, for the most dedicated people, but for the average sort of person who's in the space, do you feel like we have adequate, options for them right now? Well, this is a whole can of worms. Um, you know, my, my, I have an interesting perspective because of what CASA does. Um, you know, we build a distributed key self-custody service and software where we integrate with a number of different hardware vendors. And we do that because we believe that multi-vendor, multi-sig, a.k.a. having multiple keys on multiple different types of dedicated hardware is how you eliminate single points of failure that could happen you know, at any given company. So you know, we have to realize every company is a single point of failure. Um, and so that means you know, if you have a piece of dedicated hardware, then there can always be some sort of supply chain or insider attack or, or who knows what, like, you know, even uh, like malicious firmware um, that you know, bypasses internal systems or even that is you know, created as a result of uh, regulatory pressure or who knows. Um, the result is that you know, if you want to be protected from any one of, of these companies, you, know, you don't want to put all your money, you know, all your eggs into one basket, so to speak. Uh, we should not be trusting companies in this space. Um, you, you, you should not even be trusting CASA, which is why we architect our solution so that even if you know, CASA were to somehow become malicious or were to disappear from the face of the earth, our users would not lose their money. Uh, because they hold the all but one of their keys, the, you know, they they hold the the spending threshold of keys, and Casa doesn't have the ability to unilaterally block their transactions or create transaction w- without their approval. So the roundabout thing of like what I'm getting around to here is that you know one of Casa's internal engineering big points of friction, and this is by design, is the fact that we do not control these hardware devices that our, our users are, are making use of to you know, actually manage and, and store and use their private key material. And so the result of that is that 
these various companies, they tend to focus on developing their own full stack solution, by which I mean, you know, an example with Ledger is, you know, Ledger has, of course, Ledger Live, and they put a lot of time and effort into improving the experience and, you know, monetizing, uh, you know, functionality within Ledger Live. And then, of course, they probably want all of the people who buy a Ledger device to just be using Ledger Live uh, rather than other wallet software that might uh, integrate with Ledger. And and so the incentives are a little out of whack here in the sense that um, sometimes they make changes that break stuff because they, I think, just aren't thinking about the fact that they're not just building hardware for themselves and their own ecosystem. They really need to be thinking of themselves as platforms that other developers are building on. So, you know, it can, it can be challenging for sure. But once again, this, this all comes back to the sort of convenience and security trade-offs is, you know, CASA did not choose the easiest path. Like it would have been so much easier from an engineering perspective if CASA uh, didn't integrate with hardware devices and we just had all of our users, you know, keep their, their keys basically on their phones, you know, managed by our software, which we could have a lot more control over. But uh, we did choose the harder path. And, and I think that it's worth it because I can sleep easier at night knowing that even if something got totally screwed up with CASA, that our users would not lose their money. Yeah. I, I tend to look at these things from uh, a lot of unique, I guess, um, uh, perspectives or from these perspectives that there's more attack vectors than just like making off with the money, you know, and a lot of them have to do with the um, whether it's KYC or um, mm-hmm. other forms of, of requiring, you know, like checking users against a blacklist uh, or um, like even CASA requires KYC, right? No. No? Oh, sorry. My bad. I thought it did. <laughs> I thought you had to have um, identity proven for somebody before you could hold a key for them. No. Uh, uh, some of our competitors require KYC, but this is actually one of the big differentiators between us and some of the other uh, you know, multi-sig services out there that aren't just you know, free software. So um, you know, once again, this is it's trade-offs. Uh, it would probably be easier from us from some perspectives if we required KYC from our users, but we, we, we don't want to have to protect that information. Um, it's almost as, uh, you know, toxic and radioactive as trying to hold on to private keys. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. And, uh, you know, like Ledger Recover, anybody who uses that solution is going to have to KYC to Ledger. And so Ledger's going to know, who they are, have all their information, have their Bitcoin balances, at least as far as their ledger goes. Um, so that's the kind of stuff where, uh, I mean, that in that particular situation, I think that they admitted that they could even be coerced into um, taking somebody's Bitcoin 
right? Yep. Because they, they basically are going to have the keys. So it's like stuff like that, you know, another litmus test for, you know, it's proof of, uh, in this case, I don't know if it's proof of stupidity or proof of, of, of misplaced trust, you know, because you're, you're placing your trust in a few guys that run Ledger uh, with your Bitcoin stash. Do you understand that? Do you understand the implications of that? Maybe not. You know, so it might be a very naive thing. Um, Casa sounds like is taking the more noble path at the expense of profit, like you just said. So you know, maybe you're already a company that that's disproving, you know, the my pessimism a little bit at least. Um, how do you justify? How do you justify that? Like when you guys are sitting down and looking at the numbers, and you know. You know, I'm sure you have investors and you have to go back and be like, explain that you guys made the most prudent decisions for the business. Um, How do we know that when CASA or if CASA faces a time where it's crunched for money and you might have to lay people off and maybe you've already had these times, tell me. But like, you know, those are the times that really most companies start to buckle on their principles. Like, why won't that happen to CASA? Yeah, uh, and we have had layoffs before. And, you know, we we actually came uh, very close to the brink. I think back in 2019 or so, um, and that was when we shuttered the Node product because it was just hemorrhaging money for us, and you know we laid off everybody that was working on that product. Um, you know, I think part of it is the fact that we have intentionally hamstrung ourselves and what we can do uh is that you know the temptation might be there but there's we're literally limited into uh what we can do uh in terms of our our customers and you know potentially screwing with them so you know i think a lot of people would say oh we've already compromised on our principles by adding support for ethereum and so on and so forth and you know, for there, there's plenty of reasons why I wish that we were able to just stick to Bitcoin. But, you know, we do have that profit motivation of wanting to to improve our revenues and profit margins and, and basically meet the demands of our customers, uh, because we know that if we don't, then we could potentially lose them to other uh, competitors. And, and we know that we have lost a decent amount of business to custodians because we don't have uh, you know, as wide of an offering as a lot of custodians do. And so there are a number of people out there who, if they have very broad range of assets, they want to keep them all in one place. And so you know they are looking for convenience. And so this... I really do consider custodians to be our biggest competitor. They have this huge edge, this advantage on the convenience that they're able to offer. And if we can't get at least most of the way there on the convenience, then a lot of people are going to shoot themselves in the foot and choose the convenience over security. So, you know, what's, what is CASA going to do over the long run? Uh, You know, we're going to, continue to explore our options of essentially what services we are able to provide people while remaining a software service and not a a regulated financial institution. 
the vast majority of our competitors are regulated financial institutions. That you know that gives them a whole lot more uh, leverage in like the things that they can do. Of course, a lot of risk as well that comes along with that. So I guess you could say that you know we're trying to take a much less risky path for our customers, and it, it may be more risky for us as a business because we are essentially hamstrung uh, from a number of different decisions that we can make. Yeah. Do you think Casa is the best solution, period, for a retail, just a, a Bitcoin holder? Or, uh, or, I mean, to me, it's just I can't get my head out of the the mindset that the best way to protect my own freedom, to protect my own freedom to, to move, to transact, to um, to be self-sovereign, at least maximally, if, you know, not entirely, but as, as much as I can be in this world, is to have complete control and to n- not have identity attached um, in any way. And to be the the guy out there burying shit in the dirt, you know, like I mean, it's like to me that's the ultimate uh, freedom, you know. And as soon as you yeah. start involving any other third parties, it starts to you start to make trade offs, and that's yes. that's how I feel. Do you feel the same way? Do you feel like Casa is the optimal trade off point? That's what I'm going for. Uh, so. Um, the, if someone wants to attain the maximum level of privacy and security in Bitcoin, whatever, you know, crypto assets, uh, they're dealing with, then they basically need to do everything on their own. And this is, this has always been possible but it's a much higher bar. You know, you, you have to climb a pretty steep mountain of knowledge to understand all of the trade-offs of all of the decisions that you need to make when you are uh, creating and maintaining your custody. It's not impossible. Uh, it just takes a lot of time and effort. And so what we're going for at Casa is, you know, we're not, we're not trying to capture that segment of the market of you know the people who are willing and able to do that all themselves what we're trying to capture is more of the people who are more mainstream less technical or less you know they just have more time constraints and that would probably be choosing a custodial solution due to the convenience so you know our our value proposition is we can give you the level of support and actually a much better level of support than you're probably going to be able to get with a custodian. And we can do that in such a way that you maintain control over your funds and you're not actually trusting us. So it's trying to bridge this gap between doing everything yourself versus having a third party do everything for you. Yeah, I I hear you. Um, it seems like there's there's these multiple camps out there these days about like um, there's people that say seed phrases are too complicated, N- normal people will never get it. It's okay to use a custodian until you've figured things out. 
Um, and then you can go from there. Um, and, and I always come back with the mindset that, you know what? My point of view on this is if you are not willing to put in the research and the time and understand what this asset is and what it's capable of and be able to self-custody confidently, then you probably shouldn't be here at all because how does somebody holding Bitcoin on a custodian uh, benefit the decentralized universe here it doesn't it hurts it actually the only thing it does is it helps the price potentially <laughs> you know that's arguable mm-hmm. too uh we were doing a lot better before futures markets came in right but um at least as far as pace of growth uh, of the of the asset but um yeah so it's 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 a big debate we're, we're running low on time but um you know it's sort of my take on it is always that and it seems kind of brutal and seems kind of 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 like not so compassionate, but at the same time, I think that people are capable of doing it. People are capable of learning, and they're they're capable of of sinking their teeth in. Um, and the ones that aren't, the ones that don't want to, the ones that that just aren't doing it, can't be dragged along. Like right? we can't force them into it unless there's like a Trojan horse, like you said before. But it seems like you've got your eye on the right target, which is people who've already decided. Yes, I want this level. I want to self custody. I just one step away from. I mean, you're still self custodying with Casa, but you're one yep. step away from the, you know, the complete, uh, the complete version of that. I guess it's one way of saying like the the, the version of it where you're the one in complete one hundred percent control. You're with Casa. Maybe you're you're just at um, ninety nine. I. I it's the wrong way of putting it because you're still in control. I get it. It's a multi-sig. You have the keys. Yeah, it's, it's um, hard to to talk about. Uh, you know, yeah. the, the security model, once you get a, into a sort of um, hybrid key situation, it gets really – the lines start to blur, and they're actually going to blur a lot more in the coming years because I think with some of the advances in Bitcoin scripting that we're seeing start to come out, we're going to start to see – people creating security models where um, you know you may have full self custody during normal conditions that but then you may also define other conditions like inheritance uh, you know basically timeout conditions in the future where a flip uh, a switch will flip and the ability for other people to access those funds may start to come into play. And, and it may not be as simple as saying, okay, you know, if a few years go by, then just let, um, you know, entity X access it, but we could very easily get into situations where we have kind of a multi-institution custody setup where, you, you may say, you know, if my wallet is inactive for many years, then a spending threshold of keys between semi-trusted uh, semi institutions X, Y, and Z may be able to come together to, you know, spend the funds from this. And, you know, those will probably be, you know, KYC 
type of institutions that have lists of beneficiaries and other people who should be able to you know lay claim on the funds and whatnot but it's it's definitely going to get more complicated and difficult to talk about but i also i look at this whole thing from a a technology adoption life cycle perspective of you know i remember my family in the like 90s and early 2000s being extreme laggards to adopt the internet and email and stuff like that. But, you know, decades go by, then the technology and the interfaces continue to improve. And and eventually, it becomes a, a network effect such that they, they go from, instead of being the majority uh, of people who haven't adopted the technology, you become the outsider where everybody except you is using the technology. And it's, and it's basically a, a sort of peer or social pressure incentive of you're missing out if you don't use it. True, true. Um, but if the, if the internet um, from, you know, the early nineties to today, if that same trajectory is followed by Bitcoin, I think we're kind of screwed. Right. As far as like the centralization of it, as far as the vulnerabilities everywhere, the tracking, the surveillance, the regulation, we have to we have to do better than we did with the Internet, I think. Like, so, but I hear you, but it's kind of also what I fear is that people get sucked into the wrong version of it. You know, and I kind yeah, of, yeah. You know, that's one of the things I've been talking about for the past year is actually looking at various internet protocols and how they have become extremely centralized over time. Uh, my favorite is email. Uh, you know, you know, email is mass adopted, used by billions of people every day, but it's actually a monster of a protocol compared to what it was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And it's not really possible to actually be a sovereign email user anymore. The thing that we call email is literally just a handful of gatekeepers that are talking to each other on our behalf. Yeah, that's a great example. I just got, I'm a ProtonMail user, and I just got an email from them recently advising like why it's you basically can't run your own email server anymore. Like you just can't, yep. you can't receive email to it. You know, you have to be a, a custodian of email or you have to deal mm-hmm. with one in order to even use it anymore. And it's a great example. Email is, you know, a great parallel, a great comparison for Bitcoin as a, as an open protocol that got centralized over time. Um, we just have to, that's, that's the thing, man. We just have to fight and, and make sure that people understand why Bitcoin can't go in the same direction. We probably should have forked email like 10, 20 years ago, right? <laughs> Done it differently. But anyway, um, no, this has been great, man. I have to have you come back sometime because I, like, I have a whole list of stuff that I wanted to get to with you, but I was way too ambitious, especially with like Twitter stuff with Nostra and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, that's a whole separate convo. But thanks for being here. I really appreciate you. You bet. Thanks for having me.